Well, a, a couple of weeks ago, I was uh, on the road um, preaching at, at another church, and it was the first time I'd ever had to preach three sermons in a row. Uh, and I was absolutely exhausted. And on top of that, I had to come back in the evening for an hour and a half session, a dialogue with uh, an atheist who's written a book entitled, I Sold My Soul on eBay. So I, I was pretty wiped out from the morning and then was faced with having to hang out with an atheist in front of a lot of people and not look like a complete fool uh, in the evening. And I thought it'd be great to get uh, to go visit the pool and maybe just to kind of decompress in the hot tub and gather my thoughts and start prepping for the evening. Uh, but I was greeted by a stranger in the hot tub who was in town for his son's traveling basketball tournament. And for the next 35 minutes, he went on nonstop about his son's athletic exploits, how tall he was for his age, how he was recruited, where they travel, how often they go there, how many trophies they've won, how many mileage points he's built up at Holiday Inn, um, uh, how he travels for his job. It just went on and on and on. It was, it was almost asphyxiating. And I wasn't sure if it was due to the hot water or, or the hot air, actually. <laughs> Um, I finally had to get out. Um, This was one proud father. He loved his kid, it was clear. We Americans were kind of a proud people. We like to celebrate us. Time Magazine's person of the year in 2007 was you. Everybody, this is, we're the you, me generation. There, there, There we go. Yes, you control the information age. Welcome to your world. We now have YouTube. We boast about our jobs, our incomes, where we go on vacation. We upload the photos to Facebook. We even boast about our cars. Or if we don't have a car worth boasting about, we put stickers on the back of our cars, which boast about our kids. you, you, you can't read these, and I've deliberately blocked out the Texas license plate. I've nothing against Texans. Um, but two of these bumper stickers proclaim uh, how, uh, how these students were honor roll students. And there's also, the one in the middle is actually for perfect attendance. So I'm, I'm not sure if, if there are three kids and one of them didn't measure up, or if, <laughs> if they've had two kids, but, but they're on the back of the truck. We even have bumper stickers for the rest of us who didn't make the honor roll, myself included. Um, You can go on the internet and get this. My son can beat up your honor student. Um, And yes, believe it or not, you can even join a Facebook page dedicated to this idea. Um, It's somewhat encouraging that only seven people have joined, if there's anything redeeming. But you get get the message, you probably can't see this from from where you are, but there's there's two equations that kind of summarize all of life. Uh, In in the bottom left-hand corner, uh, honor students equals successful job, okay? Not honor students equals party and lives. If if, If you want a life, maybe being an honor student isn't where you want to go. If we're honest, we don't limit our boasting to just our kids. We like to boast about our churches, how big they are, how hip the pastor is, our doctrine, the building, 
the worship music, or the influence we have. The Apostle Paul certainly had a lot to boast about and even occasionally indulged his listeners in the noble position of his birth, his education, his special commission by Christ, and his zeal for God, for the cross. But when he encountered the Galatians, he boiled it down to just one thing, and that's the cross. In fact, if you could summarize Paul's entire life, entire ministry, it probably boiled down to one statement, and that statement is probably found at the end of Galatians, where we're going to look this morning. Our text is from the book of Galatians, the last chapter, Galatians 6, 11 through 18. It should be on page 826 in your pew Bibles. Galatians 6, 11 to 18. See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised obey the law. Yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, even to the Israel of God. Finally, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Paul has just written this letter to the Galatians because some Jewish converts to Christianity were teaching that some of the Old Testament ceremonial practices were still necessary in the Christian life. In particular, some were arguing that circumcision be retained. This was extremely important to the Jew, for it represented the covenant that God had made with Abraham almost 2,000 years earlier when God promised to bless Abraham and through Abraham to bless the entire world. All males, all male children were to be circumcised on the eighth day as a sign of the covenant between God and his people. You were not a Jew if you were not circumcised. And some Jews were pressuring Gentiles to receive circumcision in addition to the gospel. They became known as Judaizers, Today, I think we'd say that sometimes we have a tendency to be Christianizers. But Paul has pointed out to the Galatians that in light of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the law is no longer a viable means for righteousness or a right relationship with God. Salvation comes through the cross alone. If righteousness could come through the law, then there would be no need for the cross, Paul said. And he's just spent five chapters refuting the teaching of these Judaizers and this movement that the Apostle Peter himself was getting pulled into. 
And as he brings this letter to a close, he notes that he's now writing with his own hand in big letters. It could be that he had eye trouble. And it's probably there for some form of emphasis. Because it it may have been a normal custom for Paul to actually uh, dictate his letters to a scribe. Or the technical term would be amanuensis. Someone else would be writing down as Paul spoke. But it wouldn't be uncommon at the end of the letter for Paul to take the pen in his own hand and kind of sign off. And I suspect that as he's getting ready to sign his name to this letter, he decides to add one more thing. One more thing that he wants to come through crystal clearly in his own words, in big letters. And I think it's basically this. If you guys are going to boast in something, boast in the cross. If you're going to boast in something, boast in the cross. And in the remaining few lines of this letter, he gives several reasons for doing this. And I think the first thing that comes through quite clearly is that boasting in the cross combats our tendencies for comfort and control. Boasting in the cross combats our tendencies for comfort and control. And he exposes the motives of the Judaizers here who are attempting again to add circumcision on top of the gospel. And this first, uh, this first tendency is something that afflicts us today probably more than ever. And that is the tendency of impression management. They literally were desiring to make a good impression in the flesh. They wanted to look good to others. We're obsessed with presenting the right image. When Andre Agassi was still playing tennis, uh, he took part in a commercial for Nikon where he said, image is everything. I suspect his latest book probably undermines that opinion. You never get a second chance to make a first impression. TV ads, billboards, infomercials, magazines, all encourage us to invest in our outward appearance. The voices of consumerism clamor. Buy me, try me, drink me during, before, and after exercise. Put me in your bath water, rub me on your skin, put me in your hair. When women apply makeup, there's usually a kind of shorthand notation for that. I need to put my face on. Men are not off the hook here, I hasten to add. We put on our faces too. We know how to use our facial expressions to manage impressions. Just ask George Costanza on Seinfeld. You see, uh, he was working for the Yankees, and uh, he had learned that if you just act angry and annoyed when people are around you, they think you're working hard. I mean, try that at work sometime. Actually, don't try that at work sometime. Um, And I, I think he may have actually been given an extended vacation just through acting like he was working hard, through acting annoyed, without actually doing anything. Paul asserts that the Judaizers were compelling Gentile Christians to be circumcised to avoid persecution from their own kind, from members of their own race, from other Jews. And he says, look, you're trying to look good. But really, you're trying to avoid persecution for the cross of Christ. 
It's hardly surprising. The cross is offensive. It's repulsive. There's no way around it. The cross lays bare any attempt to please God on our own terms. And the cross still offends today. It's interesting that if you consult the Encyclopedia Judaica, which is a great reference resource, you can find an entry for crucifixion, but you will find no entry for the word cross. It is not a part of the faith. So, how do we order our own lives to avoid persecution? Are there certain types of people that we just assume avoid? Are there certain settings where our faith in Christ is something to conceal rather than display? If we can't boast about the cross, the default mode is acting otherwise. If we can't boast about the cross of Christ, these realities are inevitably, this is what, these are the patterns we slip into. And the Judaizers were guilty of impression management in order to avoid persecution. But Paul goes a step further and says that the Judaizers were also boasting about their influence. They wanted to let others know about who they've converted. They had no real interest in the spiritual development or well-being of these Gentiles, but rather they kind of treated them as trophies, objects to be won over for their own sense of comfort, influence, and well-being. And Paul doesn't hesitate to point out the hypocritical nature of this exercise, claiming that they don't keep the law themselves, yet they expect others to adhere to it. I'm so glad the church isn't like that. Dallas Willard writes that the greatest emphases in evangelical churches today are typically doctrinal correctness and external conformity. Church steering committee meetings can be a dangerous place to be and can often take on the tenor of the boardroom on the celebrity, celebrity apprentice, that is. Only it's harder to fire people. Now, we don't battle over circumcision anymore, but the subtle temptation of influence always remains. And frankly, sometimes we Christians just aren't very nice people. I'll never forget a a former professor, we were having lunch several years ago on, on a Monday, and he said, as I was sitting in church yesterday, I could not help but wonder why people still come. Maybe you're having that thought right now. John Ortberg, teaching pastor of Menlo Park Presbyterian Church in California, told the story once of a church that decided to make a concerted effort to reach the next generation, the younger generation, sometimes known as Gen Xers. So they began to tailor their service to reach these people, and they began coming. And the gospel was going forth, and people were receiving mercy and grace. But the demographic of the congregation began to change. Um, And finally, uh, two camps formed in the church, and the traditionalists were going against the progressives. And eventually, the traditionalists won. Eventually, the crowd of grungy, body-pierced, tattoo-laden youths left. 
and one woman proudly proclaimed, we've got our church back. (laughs) She was essentially saying, become like us and then you'll be accepted, where the rules of conservative dress and propriety in worship have become more important than the cross. But the cross is for losers. It's for outcasts, it's for rejects. Sometimes we have a tendency to boast in how contemporary or relevant our church is. This can easily descend or disintegrate into the gospel of life management. How to be successful. Sometimes we boast in our doctrinal distinctives, how we celebrate communion, how often we celebrate communion, how we practice baptism, believer's baptism. It's actually possible to boast in diminishing attendance. Some churches take a hostile stance to the world and kind of wear that diminishing attendance as a badge of honor, as evidence that they are clinging to the truth when the rest of the world is going to hell. So, what are, we, what are we most proud of? What do we like to boast about here at Windsor? Are we asking those in our community to become like us before they'll be accepted or integrated into the family? Boasting in the cross combats our desire for comfort and control. But Paul goes deeper and says the cross also changes our relationship to the world. You want to boast in something, Paul says? Boast in the cross. The idea of boasting in the cross or an instrument of torture, a sign of suffering and death, humiliating defeat, was almost unthinkable in those days. In fact, the word cross in Latin, crux, was not to be publicly mentioned in polite Roman society. I was trying to think of uh, an analogous word today, but it wouldn't be polite to say it. But we do the same thing, don't we? We typically don't put up bad report cards on the refrigerator. Maybe we should. (laughs) We don't frame our notices of termination. Hey, I've been laid off. There are no champagne-soaked locker room celebrations for coming in second place. And for Paul, the cross is a reminder of his radically altered relationship between himself and the world. And he talks about this in a two-way street. The world's been crucified to him, and he's been crucified to the world. Because of the cross, the world is dead to Paul. In fact, he uses the term world. We need to be a little bit careful Cosmos. He's speaking in terms of anything outside of Jesus Christ in which we place our trust or we're likely to boast. The world stands for any power that is opposed to God's power. And so Paul is saying that the wisdom of the world, the power structures and the authorities and the pride of humanity, those things which set themselves up as powers against God, they have all been crucified. The world says you have every right to hate your enemies. Christ said we're to love and bless those who persecute us. The world says hang on to your possessions. Christ said that we're to give our stuff away. 
The world says you've got to find yourself if you really want to have a life. Christ says you've got to lose your life if you want to find it. So Paul is not advocating that we seclude ourselves in some type of pietistic exercise from the rest of society or culture. It is still God's world. But to be crucified to the world means that the world is no longer the standard by which my sense of success is to be defined. I'll do a little, just a little bit of theology here. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I think, was onto something. I think he had the right idea when he spoke of the freedom to live in a genuine worldliness. A little theology of the cross from his, from his work on ethics. Jesus Christ, the crucified reconciler. This means first that by its rejection of Jesus Christ, the entire world has become godless and that no effort on its part can lift this curse from it. In the cross of Christ, the worldliness of the world has once and for all received its identifying mark. However, Christ's cross is the cross of the world's reconciliation with God. Therefore, precisely, the godless world simultaneously stands under the identifying mark of reconciliation as freely instituted by God. The cross of reconciliation sets us free to live before God in the midst of the godless world, sets us free to live in genuine worldliness. I would so much rather live in genuine worldliness than in a genuine Christianizing kind of society. The cross of Christ is both a judgment of God against the world and a reconciliation of the world to God. The cross tells us that this world, though still dead, really matters. But if the world is in a sense dead to us, Paul is quick to point out that we are also dead to the world. As far as the world is concerned, Paul is dead. He's a corpse. No one carries on an open-ended conversation with a corpse at a funeral. No one says, so, how you been? (laughs) You look terrible. (laughs) But back in Galatians 2.20, Paul makes an absolutely remarkable statement. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We are alive in the spirit, but dead to the world. Because of the cross, our relationship to the world is forever changed. We have been crucified with Christ. Circumcision means nothing. Now, that clearly doesn't mean that our struggle with sin is over. In fact, becoming a Christian in in some ways uh, becomes the recognition of a battle that we didn't know We had been fighting all along. We still occasionally think and act like dead people. We still struggle with impression management. We still struggle to maintain control. We still seek the wrong kinds of influence. But it does mean that we now have the power to resist these kinds of temptations, temptations that we were formerly unable to conquer. 
But reflecting on the cross also means challenging our thoughts and actions and dispositions in light of the cross. It means reminding ourselves when we think and act like the old dead people we used to be. So the next time you catch yourself perhaps being overly judgmental towards a church or your spouse or your kids, the next time you're ready to launch a verbal attack and inflict some wounds, let the cross remind you that those are coming from the old you, the dead you. You might even uh, gently encourage each other in that way. The next time your husband is tempted to say something stupid, just remind him, honey, those are thoughts of a dead man. (laughs) You you, you might want to express them in such a way that they come forward as an encouragement and not, not a threat. And finally, Paul concludes that what really matters is that through the cross, we are created anew. You you can't talk about the cross and just stop at death. Because there is no resurrection without the cross. Yes, we're dead, but even better, we're recreated. The final reason for boasting in the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. The cross has demolished the distinction between Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, weak and strong. The cross is also a great divide between the old and the new, and the old way can never alter us internally. But I also want to point out that without question, Israel, Israel is a part of the Christian story and will always remain. Jews remain God's chosen people through whom the rest of the world will be blessed through Jesus Christ, descendant of David. But the story moves beyond obedience to laws and circumcision. And the Judaizers were elevating circumcision over the cross, the cross by which and through which we are made new creation. The reality of our crucifixion and our new createdness, however, enables us to see a higher agenda beyond the satisfaction of just our unmet needs. Because real change only comes through the cross. Real change only comes through failure. Real change, says Philip Yancey, only comes when all hope is lost. I love this quote. Paul spoke not of resignation, but of transformation. The very things that make us feel inadequate, the very things that plunder hope, these are what God uses to accomplish his work. For proof, look at the cross. For more proof, look around you. And Paul is so serious about this new creation that he proclaims this kind of rule of benediction in verse 16 to those who live by it. He wishes them peace and mercy. Peace and mercy. Peace and mercy is given to those who have been crucified to the world for those who are free from living up to external standards imposed by those who want to add to the gospel. 
Peace and mercy is given to those who are tired of putting up with hypocritical, joyless, lifeless, legalistic Christians who are more concerned with preserving the status quo than proclaiming the cross of Christ. Peace and mercy to those who have grown weary of their own hypocrisy and are tired of pretending that everything is okay in and with the church. Peace and mercy to those who through the cross are relieved from the burden of making history turn out right. Who recognize that through Christ's victory on the cross, the powers and principalities and governments that have set themselves up against God have already been conquered. Colossians 2. The cross means that we're all failures. (laughs) But thankfully, the cross also means new creation. The cross means that we give up on trying to influence others through our own efforts. And to be sure, boasting in the cross can be hazardous to one's health. Boasting in the cross can have a far greater influence in the world than we could ever imagine. In his book, The Cross of Christ, F.J. Huygel recalls an event during the Boxer Rebellion in China in 1901, where missionaries and followers of Christ were under attack and expulsion um, in an attempt to purify Chinese culture from what was perceived as a Western imperialist influence. He writes that a particular mission school was captured by a group of boxer rebels, and all entrances were blocked except one where they found a cross and laid it on the ground, guaranteeing freedom to those who were willing to trample on the cross on their way out the door. The first seven kids to walk through did just that. Can't say I blame them. (laughs) But the eighth girl... She decided to kneel before the cross and say a short prayer before she rose to her feet and walked around it. She was promptly taken and executed, shot in the head. (laughs) The other 92 kids, 92, all followed suit. That is a horrible, horrible waste. Let's see, deeply, (laughs) I have trouble with that. That's a disturbing story. (laughs) Why not just walk across the cross and live? I mean, isn't this a recipe for abuse, for people to walk all over us? Is it not just a symbol? Wouldn't her escape have enabled her to do great things for God later on in life? Is there anything wrong with freedom? Isn't isn't staying alive the greater good? Or maybe she just really didn't understand what she was doing. Maybe her life was so miserable that a bullet to the head was preferable to the life she was living. (laughs) I, I don't think so. I know what I would have done. 
I've got books to write, lectures to give, and sermons to preach and how to be sacrificial. (laughs) But I suspect the little girl and the rest who followed her were the ones who were truly free. And I think the truth of it is is that that little girl exerted more influence in those few steps around the cross than a thousand sermons or testimonials could ever evoke. What if that was your kid? Are you parenting in such a way that that might be a possibility? What would boasting in the cross look like in your life? And so finally, Paul asks that no one give him any more trouble about this. In verse 17, he's had enough. He's earned that right, his body bearing the marks which attest to the reality of the cross. I think it is interesting that Paul does not call his wounds marks of persecution, or marks of courage, or marks of fortitude, or marks of devotion, or marks of obedience because he refuses to locate his identity in what he has suffered, but rather in who he follows. He simply calls them the marks of Jesus. Some of us here have those marks. They may not be physical scars, but they're emotional ones. For those who have ever been forsaken or misunderstood for their faith, bear the marks of Jesus. Those who have ever been marginalized or mistreated for standing up for the truth bear the marks of Jesus on their hearts. Truth be told, there are many of us, myself included here, who have lived in such a way to try to avoid these marks. (laughs) But make no mistake, we're all marked by what or who we choose to follow. We are all marked by what or who we choose to follow. What kind of marks do you want? As believers may be said of our lives that we boasted only in the cross. 